The time is January 19th, 1996, when we saw George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino go on the run from a bank robbery that left several police officers dead. Seth, played by George Clooney and his paranoid loose cannon brother Richard, played by Quentin Tarantino, hightail it to the Mexican border. Kidnapping preacher Jacob Fuller, played by Harvey Keitel, along with his kids. The group sneak across the Mexican border in the family's RV and hold up in a topless bar. Unfortunately, the bar also happens to be home base for a gang of vampires. And the brothers and their hostages have to rely on each other if they are to survive the night. This week on Back to the Balcony, we discuss the movie and our Siskel and Ebert reviews for From Dust Till Dawn. Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, two titans of cinematic review. Sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but always captivating. Your hosts Antonio of the Cult Worthy Cinema Podcast and Justin Henson of The Movie Wire are here to take you back to the balcony. And welcome to Back to the Balcony. Now, Antonio, this movie is near and dear to my heart. I remember in high school, I was browsing the video store. I think it was like a Friday, Saturday night. I didn't know anything about this movie. I remember just browsing by. The video store was about to close, and I was familiar with the cover. I knew Tarantino. I knew Clooney. He's hot commodity on TV coming off of HR or ER. And I just picked it up. So I just kind of grabbed it at the last minute, not knowing what to expect. And I have to say, after watching this movie, it just stayed with me. The sharp dialogue, the characters, the chemistry, it all just kept me engaged. The writing of Tarantino in this is just so good. It feels like the writing just paints the picture of emotion for the characters. And we just go along with the journey with these characters, almost like we were in danger. So until we get to the 45 minute mark, then it's kind of like, what in the hell am I watching? And we're going to get into it, but I have to ask the man on the other side of the microphone. <laughs> what was your first reaction? Your first viewing of from dust till dawn. I'm really excited about this one. No, this is a great one. This one is like a straight out of my childhood. I was uh, 15 when it came out, and I saw it in the theater with my dad specifically because we were huge fans of Desperado. We saw Desperado in the theater like four times. Uh, we rented El Mariachi right when it came out on video. Uh, a lot of people were talking about that. It was a hit at Sundance. And remember, I live in Utah. I used to volunteer at Sundance. I've been to many Sundance film festivals, so... I always knew what was relevant at the festival that year. So Robert Rodriguez was already a big name for me. Of course, Tarantino was already a big name out there. And this is one of those like apocryphal stories that people have about this movie where I went and saw it or I rented it and I didn't know it was about vampires. I thought it was a crime movie, a getaway movie, like a peck and paw movie. And all of a sudden vampires show up. Well, I mean, I remember in the marketing, they're definitely being vampires, and they even showed the Salma Hayek transformation in the original trailer. So I knew what was coming, but my dad didn't. I would just drag him along to things. So it was one of those films for me where it's like I had the knowledge that vampires were going to show up, but to have an old dude next to me have no idea and see the reaction on his face... To me, that's just as good as experiencing that twist yourself for the first time. Like seeing someone else experience it to me is just as good. So yeah, this has been a staple of mine for a very, very, very long time. And uh, the 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 knowledge I have of this movie and the background to it, let's not forget that I'm going to say like late 90s, early 2000s, they released a documentary about this film called Full Tilt Boogie about the making of it. And it was really just kind of like a fly in the wall behind the scenes, someone with a camcorder following Tarantino around and just watching the process. So even the making of this movie is fascinating 
the fact that they used a non-union workforce, that they had, you know, high-profile actors for the time. You know, Clooney was already a name for ER, but this was like his big screen debut. So to watch these behind-the-scenes featurettes in this full-tilt boogie movie and seeing how humble of a star he is at this point, where, like, he's not really showing his gravitas yet, that's really fascinating. The person that's got the most gravitas is Tarantino himself because he's got a lot of cards on the table with this one. So that's kind of like my history of it. That's my personal knowledge of it. I think I know a little bit more about this movie than a lot of other movies just because at that time there was a lot available to know about what went into making this. Well, and I think what I really appreciate about Tarantino in this is you can really see the love of film that he has just shine on the screen because this was his first paycheck when being a writer and he really didn't hold anything back from the balance. And again, the biggest topic with this movie is going to be the first half versus the last half. That's what people are going to just stand out in their mind. But if, and we usually go off of the first reaction of it, but we never really go on the follow-up. That's all people can talk about without really giving any substance to how the two actually interconnect. And what I really appreciated about it, uh, Tarantino is he subtly connects these two different pieces of movies that are actually pretty close together if you really deep dive into it. And he, for getting a first paycheck on this, he didn't really care. He did it the way he wanted to do it. He made the style with Rodriguez and the vision come to the screen to the point where it actually is a very confusing movie if you don't really deep dive into kind of what he's trying to portray as messaging on the screen. Yeah, and I think the reason why he feels so at ease with this is because it was a paid gig. There's a little bit more backstory to that. So the the original idea for this movie came from special effects wizard Robert Kurtzman of KNB. And Berger, Kurtzman, Nicotero, they did all the special effects, and they still do, for all of Tarantino's movies, as well as zombie films for Romero in the later days. They have their own effects company and they're just fantastic. Kurtzman had this idea and he actually shot a trailer for this movie in 1991 before he had even really met Tarantino. And the idea for it was Pilato, or Joseph Pilato, who was the bad major in Day of the Dead who gets his guts torn out at the end, you know, choke on him, you bastards. He was the idea to be casted as Seth Gecko. The story was based around him. But Kurtzman wasn't much of a writer. So once he kind of hooked up with Tarantino after they did Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, he's like, hey, man, I got this story, but I'm not a writer. How about I pay you as much as I can pay you, which was $15,000, and you write the script for this movie, and then I'll shop it around and see if we can get it made. And Quentin loved it. So he did it. They shopped it around. It went from director to director to director. People just didn't really want to do it. And then eventually, after connecting with Robert Rodriguez at Sundance Film Lab, he's like, hey, well, I got this script that I wrote for this guy. It kind of feels like something we could do together. And they worked so well on Desperado. Boom. This movie gets made. So I feel that because this isn't Tarantino's story... He was given bullet points of what the story was going to be, and then he could just do whatever he wanted with the dialogue. And there's restraint to this, right? There's restraint to how he's writing because he's not the one that has to make all the connections for the story. He's not having to tell a nonlinear story like he normally does. This is him able to just write a script, point A to point B, pretty much like true romance as well, you know? It's it's a very linear story that he can play with. And he can do all the things he likes to do. He can take Peck and Paul movies and throw them in there. He can take Samuel Fuller movies and throw them in there. I mean, the family are named the Fullers, you know? So obviously, he's giving a little wink and nod for all of us cinema nerds. And I, I that's why I think this one does feel different than the auteur movies that he does because he was able to a play with someone else's paintbrush and B he gets to star in it. He gets to write his own dialogue and be like one of the major players. So 
yeah, you see a little bit of freedom and I'm going to say more loose energy to how he comes off with his dialogue, his storytelling, and his performance in this because he's not the one that has to be behind the camera. He's not the one that has to like do all the the screen changes and dailies. Like He can just go and play, and that's what it feels like. Well, we look at this too, and that's all great stuff, but we look at the sharpness of the dialogue when it comes to even the first half of it, the chemistry on that, the build on it. So it almost feels like it should be a different movie when it comes to the first half, where where I don't think it's a problem where we cut off to the vampires in the second half. I think the transitional piece of it might be a little bit of an issue where we kind of go and do a second half of just vampires. So I think there should have been more when it comes to the storytelling, when it comes to the transition towards the end. But I think when it comes to the sharpness of the relationship and the build of it, he had a clear vision of how these characters wanted to play out situation wise, but not necessarily how the characters are going to interact. It almost feels like to me, like some of it was improv based on kind of what we see a line delivered from one of our characters. I, uh, the young boy, where it feels like reality TV of a true crime story. It feels that real when it comes to how smart and good it is, because um, we'll get into it. But even in one of our critics reviews, they say his dialogue paints a picture of a whole world. And we see that throughout the movie, not just in a first act, but in the RV, in the secluded one setting RV, he's willing to paint that emotion paint that picture of how our characters are feeling with not even them speaking, but with our kidnappers speaking on their behalf. So there is a certain brilliance to this kind of storytelling that I really did love. And part of me really wanted to see that first half go further, but holistically, I'm kind of glad they did. And it's kind of leaving that little nugget on the table to just kind of use our imagination where you don't want to get too much of the good stuff because it's already mere perfection when it comes to the dialogue. Yeah, but I think that's 100% intentional. I think yeah. that he does write the first half of this movie like a Peckinpah movie. It's essentially the getaway. It's the getaway mixed with Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. It is that world of just grittiness and grime, border life. You know, everyone's kind of blue collar it, that's the feeling that they put across. The switcheroo on you is what really gets you into this mode of fury for some people where like one of our reviewers says it, you're either going to like the first half and hate the last half or vice versa because it does go from crime drama to genre picture. And when I say genre picture, it goes hard in the paint on genre picture but it's made by people that love both of those worlds. So that juxtaposition, that contrast between the two being so extreme is 100% intentional. It's up to the audience of whether or not we're going to accept it. And when we get into the reviews, you'll see how one critic really kind of does accept it and the other one pushes against it with everything he's got. This is a flawed movie when it comes to some pacing, some editing, things like that. And that is really typical to, to me of Robert Rodriguez, who's a man who likes to wear all the hats. You know, lucky for him, and I, I put this note in there for sure, is that he did not light this movie himself as he did f movies after it. He had Guillermo Novaro, who is known for working with Del Toro, grew up with Del Toro, came together and made their first movies together. And there's this period in the 90s where Guillermo Navarro was lighting for Rodriguez. He lit Jackie Brown, which I think is one of the best-looking Tarantino movies because it feels so gritty. It feels like the kind of movie he was trying to make, where once he started working with Richardson, it's very glamorous. It's very colorful and rich. This movie's got lots of richness and depth of colors and I think that is what covers up a lot of the shoddiness behind the production. And it's brilliant how that works. It, it works so well. So when we talk about the pacing issues and the editing issues and some of the flaws between the special effects that happen later in the movie, you know, people blowing up, you got the still frame of the 
dummy before it gets blown up. You know, there are some transitions that are a little choppy. I like that because it shows the film craft. It shows, like, they do hold a millisecond too long on purpose, in my opinion, because they are paying tribute to the movies that they grew up with. It can't look too good. That's the trick. If you make it look too good, then you forget that you are actually watching a genre picture. So in a film like this, those are the only flaws I really hold against it. It's just some of the choppy editing, some of the, the pacing issues, and really trying to figure out what to do with that second half because you can only have so much dialogue between attacks. You can only have so much exposition before the main climax happens. I think it's done really well, but even a master couldn't really do that part justice the way these guys do it. By going harder in the paint of genre is how they can fudge over some of those blurry lines. Yeah, I didn't have so much trouble with the pacing. I actually thought the pacing was pretty spot on because, again, it's like one of those one-setting uh, movies where you have to rely on the dialogue to really push that story and that emotion forward. And I got that same relatability to that. It's like almost watching a one-set, one-man show. Um, the dialogue really pushes it forward, and I think that's what keeps Rodriguez a little bit under control when it comes to his style, where he has to worry about the visual of how it's going to be delivered. Right. But I do agree that the transition pieces are a little bit shoddy. I mean, we see the early scenes with Tarantino with the hostage in the hotel room that I absolutely hated the editing in that particular scene. So there is some shoddiness to it, but I do also agree 110% that if it does look too good, when we get to the second half of the movie, we do have some special effects opportunities where it does look a little goofy at times. Um, and if the first half does look really, really good, and then we get kind of that campiness special effects, then yeah, the two are going to contradict each other pretty, pretty drastically. So I think when it comes to the tones matching and you said it, I think that actually worked perfectly together. But the one thing that I will hold, hand over heart say that this movie in no way and pacing wise would be slow, boring or off balance. I think, yes, again, we're going to get into the second half of the movie where it just goes full throttle and the dialogue, I think, Dialogue is spoken in that scene when necessary and it's on purpose and it's to prove and support the previous dialogue from the first couple of acts. Mm -hmm. Because again, this is where the climax has to prove the messaging and whether or not you get a message from this, that's going to be up to the viewer. Me, I did get a message from this um, when it comes to the ending. And that is because of the smart dialogue when it's spoken within the characters of the climax. Well, and I think Tarantino does a really brilliant thing with the writing and the characters once he takes himself out of the equation because essentially your sour character of this bunch is Richie, is his character. And this is one thing I can always say about Tarantino's acting is that he's not a good actor. He's a self-confessed bad actor, right? But one thing that he's really good at is he is really good at enhancing the performance of good actors around him. So his, let's say, I'm not even going to say amateurish actor acting. Let's just say his, his much to be desired performances often complements how good the person he's acting opposite does. Perfect example, the scene in Pulp Fiction when, I mean, you've got this guy going against Travolta, Sam Jackson, and Keitel in the same room. It works because he is the odd man out. It creates a dynamic that seems a lot more feasible with these badass guys dealing with this goofy dude. His chemistry with Clooney, where Clooney is on fire and he's intense, Richie, the way he plays him, is almost like a Lenny character, right? He's got a real kind of like of mice and men going on. Now, once he's out of the equation, you've got Tom Savini as Sex Machine and Fred Williamson to take that place in those moments of dialogue and bring these kind of salty and sour characters to the dynamic so you don't turn the people that you've already connected with, the Fuller family, you don't turn against them. You don't have any ill will. If anything, you're more connected to them. So you bring these other characters in to share the saltiness that Richie left behind. It's a brilliant move when it comes to character dynamics. 
and it allows us to continue to idolize Seth Gecko as the main character, our main anti-hero protagonist, so to speak. I think there's a real dominance to Clooney and Tarantino. So Tarantino, I 100% uh, agree to the fact that he's not a good actor. It's almost soap opera-ish to an extent. But the way he his performance portrays, like you said, it really has a moment to have Clooney really shine as that dominant uh questionable if you're going to like him if you're or if you're going to hate him so it was a smart move to have tarantino with a little bit less speaking lines and to have that creepiness to him and have that almost stockholder syndrome where we want to follow clooney Mm -hmm. and we just want to see what happens to richie and i think it was a smart move of the result of what we saw from tarantino's uh scene within i think for the first 10 15 minutes of the bar and to really have Clooney kind of carry the torch into the likability zone of our criminals, which goes into the almost a symbolic redemption piece of it, of these two. Because between Clooney and Tarantino, the character design between them, we portray that, or at least I portray that as a viewer, almost I can picture exactly how they're supposed to be written. I wanted to root for Clooney and Tarantino was a scumbag and his performance kind of really showed a horrible performance with a scumbag-like mentality. We wanted him out of the scene. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it was a brilliant, brilliantly written, and more importantly, brilliantly, the character design was brilliantly uh, executed. So I think, and that kind of goes to the point of that's what also helps support the pacing of it, is we get Clooney leading the pack. And the more likable this character is, the more we will go on any place he takes us, any scene, any act, and we will go on that journey with him. And I think that was almost extremely intelligently intelligently, uh, pre-planned to the point that we wanted more from Clooney. And I have to say with Clooney, an utter impressive uh, debut to the big screen of his performance. And I think Tarantino once said, because I think Tarantino directed one episode of ER in 95, and yeah, he did. Yeah. And that really was an introduction to Tarantino saying he wanted a character to that went from saving people to killing people. And it was a good contradiction. And not only that, but it was a great challenge to Clooney's range where even on his cheesy movies that he's done, he's never had a role like this. And he nails it. Well, there's something very stoic about it, right? Like he has like the code of the samurai, essentially but he's a bank robber, but he's got like these, these rules that he will not break. You know, this is not how we do it. This is not how it's done. He stands by his word. It's like, you have to respect him, even though he is a murderer and a bank robber because he does operate by a code, which Richie doesn't. And I think we're well aware that he would probably put Richie down before anyone else would knowing it would be the right thing to do. And essentially he does once that moment comes. Uh, Let's talk about the Fuller family because that is the next group of protagonists that we are dealing with, that we take this journey with. Seeing Harvey Keitel play this paterfamilias type character is so off type for him at this point, you know, because throughout the 90s, we watched him be the bad lieutenant. We watched him be Mr. White, the wolf, uh, the piano. You know, he's, he's... very intense throughout this period. So to see him come into this very paternal, soft character that does have, you know, his angry side towards the end, even our critics had something to say about that turn of a performance to the point where it's like, am I really watching Harvey Keitel? I think that's amazing. And then on that same note, watching Juliette Lewis play docile after she just came off of playing Mallory in Natural Born Killers And then also in Strange Days, you know, she's been playing these pretty abused and toxic women. And here she is now playing a minister's daughter that has to fight for her family's survival and her survival. It's a great turn from them. And even Ernest Liu, he's a first time actor in this, introduced in this film, didn't do a whole lot after, but he's there to serve a purpose, and he serves that purpose just fine. And it the complexity of that character being adopted, being Asian, it does throw the audience for a loop, but that throwing for a loop 
also I think enhances how dedicated this family man is where here is a child that's not even his own blood but he would die for so it builds that idea that Kaitel, even though he's a lost man of faith he still cares about the things that are really important i wanted to be really selfish with this family because i think my first viewing i wanted more from the family i wanted the backstory and again this could have led to some pacing issues and there's a rhyme and reason why and you just said it is because it's more of a symbol of the family. It's more of the symbol of this man's personality and his dedication. We have numerous conversations about his used to be a pastor, his religious belief, his wife dying, and we don't really deep dive into it because it's not necessary. We can read right. this guy. We can read his intent. We can read by the basic dialogue he has with his kids and, these, and the kidnappers what his intent is. There's a broken man that's full of sadness that still wants to do good that loses faith to an extent. So there is a, de a depth to this character that I love that they put it in the viewer's hands to discover for themselves and not spend any more time wasting painting that picture. So I could easily say I wanted to be selfish and have more of this dialogue, but I'm kind of glad I didn't because I think it's better left unsaid because it says more about the actual characters by saying less. No, I agree with that 100%. And again, like we can't we can't be grateful enough to the fact that the studio really let them do what they wanted to do and let them alone on this picture because all the things that you and I complain about in films about, you know, too many save the cat moments or trying to fit a studio formula in a film like this, that's what would ruin it. Being able to have them tell this story the way that they wanted to and kill people that they wanted to and not have survivors, not have all of these grandiose moments at the end of like, oh, everyone should be dead, but we can't kill everybody because then the audience will be sad. No, fuck that. They did this old school, down and dirty, like a 70s genre grindhouse picture. It just... It just reads so right. They read the room right, and they let the kids do what they wanted to do. And that divided audiences. You know, because, yeah, this was a, a minor hit. It only had a $15 million budget, so, of course, it was going to make a good amount of money back, but not enough to be considered a blockbuster. But, again, that was one of the things about this movie is it divided audiences. I think the risk of putting a TV heartthrob in a genre picture that's full of violence and gore and uncomfortable sexual situations was a really risky move on Clooney's part. It was kind of a risky move on the studio's part to be like, oh, people are going to flock to this movie because George Clooney from ER is in it. And then he comes out and starts calling people motherfucker, right? That's a risk. It was a risk they were willing to take. It was a risk that Clooney was willing to take. And it was smart because if you start at that high watermark of, let's say, borderline offending your audience that you've built over these years on TV, if they accept you, it gives you permission to do anything after that. You can play romantic heartthrobs. You can play uh, the, oh, brother, where art thou? And be like the Cary Grant type character. Or you can be the hitman again. Or you can be the army guy. It gives you permission, knowing that your audience is going to follow you even after you made a big screen debut with a film like this. We have all these filmmakers involved in this cast. Everybody here has a stake. Everybody's here is, I don't want to say it, but I'm going to, it's still fairly new to Hollywood. I mean, you have, yes, you have Tarantino with Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, um, but this entire cast, this was, like you said, a risk but this is still kind of the beginning, if you take Harvey Keitel out of it, kind of the beginning of everybody's career when it comes to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So this is almost a violent underdog story when it comes to the success of if this movie wasn't made, if this movie flopped, whatever it may be. This is one of those that I know I've said on my show numerous times. It's so crazy that it works. You have this hostage situation going into a titty bar with a religious family that turns into vampires. You have, like you said, the George Clooney aspect that everybody looked up to as the hero from TV. 
And then you have Tarantino that is just a visionary of violence, but with purpose. So there is a lot riding on this material. And it is as even after the credits roll, this movie still feels like it's so crazy, but it did work. And those that kind of see this movie as a one-time view, see it again, because there is so much that you would have missed from the first viewing that you appreciate the second and even third time more. Whenever you have a film like that, that you go back to and you can take more and not just Easter eggs and things like that, but more of an emotional attachment, more of an emotional element. That is great filmmaking. And at the end of the day, if you get a reaction out of a film, that's a win. And that's a win for these filmmakers. Also, the fact that like we're also doing some world building here. You know, Tarantino, he's got his big kahuna burger in there. He's got his red apple cigarettes in there. So people that were already starting to follow the cult of Tarantino put this movie in that caveat. You have one of the most prominent characters in the Tarantino verse, and that's Michael Parks' Earl McGraw. You know, he comes in as the sheriff at the beginning and that scene that uh, Ebert loved, this cold open between him and John Hawks, just talking about getting sick at a diner, talking about how burritos are for hippies, and then talking about these bank robbers. Like, they're setting up the story for you. So when we see Earl McGraw eventually in the Grindhouse movies, and then we see him in Kill Bill with his real son, it's cool to bring him back in there. But the interesting thing, too, is that since he meets his end in this film, that means that this actually happens after the events of Kill Bill in the Grindhouse movies, unless we're doing like multiverse shit where <laughs> Earl McGraw is just in these different universes. Again, it's stuff that's fun for cinema nerds like you and I, Tarantinoites, to follow and to make their own connections with. You're building cool characters. That kind of blew my mind. Now, I, now I'm going to go down the IMDb hole. I'm going to research this uh, in different conspiracies. <laughs> but we look at that one scene because this is my favorite piece of this movie is we take that opening scene with the sheriff and it's one of my favorite lines. And I think uh, one of our critics spoke to it too, is we talk to our attendant, our cashier about microwaving a burrito and the mm -hmm. sheriff calls it poison as he's ordering a poison to the body as he orders Jack Daniels. <laughs> but what I loved about that is that it really ties into that climax of Who's the antagonist here um, between vampires and George Clooney or the, the kidnappers? Because we have a room full of vampires and kidnappers. Vampires are right. here to survive. Which one is the worst sin? Which one is the worst on the soul? It asks that big question mark towards the end that really does, if you look at it, make you think. And I do think it's intentional that with the brilliance of Tarantino that he has kind of that question that he asks in the beginning. And then that question at the end to kind of tie it together, to really make you think on what is the greater sin between antagonists. So I think between tying almost like a perfect little bow when it comes to symbolism between the entire story to give something for the viewer to actually take away instead of just mindless violence or gore or just a kidnapping crime spree. Yeah, but also remember that this is a nod to, let's say, spaghetti westerns and giallos, you know, because what you're doing in those films is you are taking an anti-hero, you're taking a, a robber, a villain, an assassin, and you're making them the hero of your movie. They weren't really doing that in American studios at the time those movies came out, and even still, people don't really like doing that too much. The Coens will do it, Tarantino will do it, you know, but you can't say that it's not a wink and a nod to how they were doing that in the 60s and 70s in Italian and Spanish films. But again, he's a genre film dude. So, of course, he's going to bring those in here. I think that the next part about this conversation is just, you know. The ideas that come to this movie are definitely borrowed from other films, and that's fine. Like I always say, you know, everything old is new. And especially with Tarantino being a collage artist, people call him a ripoff artist. I say he's a collage artist. He is literally pasting photos and scenes and moments of films that he grew up loving into his work. 
He's not claiming them as his own. He's like, no, I'll even give you a roadmap to where this shit came from. You know, so when I watch this movie now, I'm like, okay, well, Night of the Demons 2, which was like in 1992 or 93. We've got holy water, water balloons, and squirt guns. Okay, I love that. We've got a lot of lost boys in that final battle. I also think there's a lot of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 in the end, where you're essentially in the lair of the vampires. You may as well as be in the lair of Leatherface. Even the end when it pulls back to expose the Aztec temple, the pyramid in the background, very similar to the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 as it pulls away and she's swinging the chainsaw around and you see that this is something that's decades or maybe even centuries old. It's paying homage to things that these people love. And it's really cool that just a person off the street can come and watch this movie and dig it and love it and talk about it. And then as they get more immersed into cinema and they can start putting the pieces together of like, oh my God, that is Lost Boys. Oh my God, that's Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. Oh, this is Assault on Precinct 13. That's his trick. That's his trap to get you to appreciate and love cinema more than you thought that you already did. So if anything, that is my favorite part about this film is the roadmap that it takes you to every genre. Like I already said, Peckinpah films. I'll say it again. It'll take you through everything that he likes and everything that he holds dear and throws it in this bonkers-ass vampire movie. And I said in the beginning is what I really liked about Tarantino is the fact you can see his passion and his love for film. Because with me, I open honestly, I don't study his uh, the way he shoots movie because he in interviews is a down to earth film lover. It's obvious. And you can see that, like you said, it shines in his film. I mean, he was raving about a movie crawl from a couple of years ago, saying it was one of the better movies of the year. So, and and yeah. that's the love that he sees on screen. You can tell a lot about a filmmaker by one, how they shoot. And if it does feel familiar, then it's not necessarily copying. It's a passion for what you like on screen. It's a passion for what you grew up with. So it's something that even in our culture now, that even if we're not in movies, it's something that we reference on a daily basis of movies that we see. It's how we behave. It's how we react in social environments. Movies play a big part, and Tarantino has harnessed that to put it on screen in a vision that he wants to see because it makes him feel good about the way he's shooting his story, the way he wants the story to be told from movies from the past. There is nothing wrong about utilizing stories from the past or styles from the past to put it on screen. When you make a remake, yeah, you make the exact same story and you make the same exact uh, cuts like I think you had in one of your shows, Cabin Fever, which is a ridiculous remake to make something shot to shot because there's lacking creativity. But when you're putting your passion on right. screen, it's like Mr. Holland's opus we're referencing it now, I w- where he quotes in, mm-hmm. in the movie where I will teach Beethoven to rock and roll if it gets somebody to love music. And that is a direct reflection of how Tarantino presents his films on screen. He wants people to like his work. He wants people to see his vision. And I think that is a brilliant way of looking at it to really have people enjoy the stories that are being told on screen. Oh, it's the same reason why like the majority of hit songs have the same four chord progression, right? It's just something that resonates in all humans and we recognize it. And then it's up to us whether or not we're going to pick and choose the things that uh, offend us or the things that annoy us or like, Oh, I've seen this before, or this is just a, a rehash of that or it's a tribute. It really is a, a subjective. Like we always say, how about we get into what our critics said about this one? Because, you know, I, I get now why you brought this one to the table, especially from this little discussion that they have towards the end of it. And honestly, it's no surprise to me now that we've done several of these and we see how these two interact and how one of them is going to be open to one particular thing and the other one's going to be very closed off. So let's hear what uh, Mr. Ebert has to say. You know, there are a few things in this movie that are really excellent, and one of them is the pre-title sequence involving a Texas Ranger played by Michael Parks. His dialogue is so well-written, so well-acted, and so funny that as he describes his backwater community, we can almost picture it. In fact, I almost wanted the movie to be about Mm. what he was talking about. Me too. 
And there are other moments like that in the movie. Tarantino can write dialogue. And Rodriguez can make films that move fast and take no hostages. The last half hour is essentially one long, violent fight scene punctuated by dialogue, and the special effects are well done. From Dust Till Dawn delivers and it entertains, so I'm giving it a thumbs up, but I know these guys have better pictures than this one in them. Okay, so yeah, essentially what we've said. He loves that opening segment. He wants to see more of that world that they paint with these characters, this backwater border town world where the guy who runs the town, the sheriff, hangs out in the liquor store essentially all day and bullshits with the guy behind the counter. Yeah, I get it. And it's a perfect way to start. I think one of the interesting things about that particular thing that he likes is when Tarantino was writing the dialogue for Michael Parks, he was literally writing dialogue for Michael Parks with the cadence of Michael Parks' speech in his head. As he was writing, he was like deleting. He's like, no, no, Michael Parks wouldn't say it this way. He was actually typing, he said, to the rhythm of Michael Parks' speech. So when he would deliver these lines, it would sound natural as anything. And he would continue to do that whenever he would write for him in, in future movies. Again, that is something so seductive, right? Where you feel so in tune with a character that you only get to spend five minutes with. And then you're like, oh, I don't get to spend more time with this guy. I have to spend with these guys. All right, I guess. Well, and this is the part of Ebert's comment that really kind of irritates me, where we're almost punishing the filmmaker for doing it so well. Well, and yeah, I agree. It sets the bar. And because you don't like what happens after, and we're not staying at Disneyland for the entire day, then you kind of just go on a Debbie Downer and analytical spin of the rest of the movie. Because it is a great scene and it does paint the picture, but I'm not going to hold five minutes in the beginning against the rest of the movie because, again, the whole movie, in my opinion, is well written. And that scene in particular is a more descriptive scene full of more context of painting that world. And we shouldn't say shame on you for not showing us. They did a great job at least painting the picture. That's more than any writer would do in most motion pictures. Well, also, I... I get where he's coming from, but I don't agree with it where he says, hey, Tarantino can write great dialogue and Rodriguez knows how to make these these fast moving action pictures. And the, this movie up until the last 30 minutes really shows what they can do, but they have a much better picture in them. Well, according to who and what kind of picture are we talking about? Because I feel like you and I have both said several times now in this conversation, this picture is exactly what they wanted it to be. It's exactly how they wanted it to be. If it was any better, then it wouldn't be from dusk till dawn, you know? And yeah, there were sequels to it, direct to video that weren't great. The series wasn't too bad. That was on the El Rey network. It gave us a little bit more deeper story into the gecko characters. But I, I think that's one of those things where it's like, okay, if you see a beautiful painting, let's say Starry Night, like i like this but i wish there were more stars you know it's like what the fuck are you talking about well and when we look at the the one thing that also in this review that they don't bring anything else up when it comes to the journey they they talk about harvey Car harvey keitel and un being unrecognizable and he does a great job which he does but they don't talk about one of the biggest aspects of the movie which is the chemistry between the characters they don't talk about Rodriguez's right. character direction because you know that had to have a, a place with these characters. They're not natural when it comes to their environment. They didn't act on this by themselves on the first try. So there is a lot to Rodriguez instead of just heavy hitting scenes with what he does. There is a talent here for Rodriguez in his character direction because the dialogue is one thing. But if you don't have the right character direction to direct the, uh, the actors and actresses on where you want the story to go and where the chemistry is then you got nothing. So they're missing the mark on giving credit where credit is due when it comes to the technicalities. So when he says they could have made a better movie, to your point, says who? Because the, the elements are right. here, but this is where you get that first reaction of this movie that always drives me nuts because you don't want to revisit it to see all the good things that come from it instead of looking for that one amazing scene and setting the bar high, and it has to be that way the entire time. It's a very close-minded way to kind of look at this film. So let's hear what Siskel has to say about this. 
giving a thumbs down and I saw a picture the essentially the same picture as two different films and I like the first one better yeah. mm -hmm. to take these interesting characters mm -hmm. the brothers uh, the ranger and he's the most interesting and then Keitel who I couldn't even spot in the beginning under his make I mean I thought he was sensational to take all these people and then to run them through a vampire trash picture and it really Roger there's nothing really original there no I didn't say not, there was I know no. not at all no, all it, the it, 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 originality it takes place before they get to the bar so I mean I I'm, I'm just so I'm sitting there and saying all right I'm invested the I, I'm laughing at some of this stuff as violent as it is and it is hyper violent uh, I just felt that you know they they didn't try in the second half of the picture and it really is yeah, half, it was a, not just a half an hour I'm giving a it thumbs down it, Again, like the contradictory stance he has on this compared to his reviews of movies that he did love that follow the same formula. I'll always go back to the fact that this is a guy who loved John Carpenter's Halloween, who praised it for all of its uh, originality and, and all of its great moments and scares. Okay, well, this follows the same beats, you know? Like, we are seeing characters in Halloween that we get to like. We get to like Laurie Strode. We get to like her friends. We get to like the family. We even get to kind of like Dr. Loomis in a sense. And then everyone just gets hacked, right? This is the same formula. You're just dealing with, I'm going to say, not as much likable characters. These are seductive and entertaining characters. And I think that's where he feels betrayed, where it's like, oh, my God, I really love these people in the first half, and then they have to put them through this horror movie. You've praised films like this that did the exact same thing so many times. It makes me wonder, what is the ugliness that you see here? Is it the special effects? Is it the fact that it's down and dirty and really grindhousey that you're putting genre people like Tom Savini and Fred Williamson in it? Like, where did this film betray you? That's where I always struggle with Siskel's conversations here because he contradicts himself so often. And he just does it again in this. And yeah, he says it over and over again of mind mindless violence. And this one doesn't have mindless. It's gory. It's bloody. Yeah. But there's no mindless violence, but we have to remember when it comes to Siskel, um, anytime there's a kid in a violent scene, anytime there's a younger person in a yeah, scene, yeah. he might not come out and say it, but it's a trend with him is that that movie is most likely going to get a thumbs down. It's going to get a negative reaction. It's going to have a comment on violence. And we do have the family in peril here, and we do have some death that happens to youth. But I think at the same time that there's Again, we talk about over and over again, the dialogue. There are some smart things that are said at the right time in this bloody mess. Yeah. So he does contradict himself quite a bit compared to his previous um, uh, film reviews. But And I think, again, they set the bar high because even Siskel uh, compares to the first scene. So, And I think that's these two are just kind of let down when it comes to the, converse, to the actual point of the vision. You know, but Ebert in his written review has some things to say, especially uh, he loves the extravaganza with uh, George Clooney making his big screen debut, shows admirable restraint in going along with the craziness without seeming overwhelmed by it. That's an excellent point. Like One of the things that really makes Clooney's performance work in this is the fact that he is the cool cucumber you know, throughout the whole movie. He's got some great lines too. It's like, those were vampires. And I don't believe in vampires, but I saw vampires. Those were fucking vampires, you know? Um, but in his written review, once again, he says that there is so much stuff that he thinks that Rodriguez and Tarantino could do that's better than this. And I think that is the part that frustrates me the most is that he didn't get to see everything that those guys have done since then. You know, it, it is an interesting way of like how Rodriguez, in my opinion, this might be a hot take. He peaked here. I feel Rodriguez peaked here as a director and then went into this world of following Lucas and James Cameron into like, you know, I want to make family friendly films. And even the violent films I make are still going to have to be visually stunning and impressive to kind of get my story across where this was the last time he used all practical effects for the most part. 
shooting on film as opposed to digital. This is Rodriguez's peak. However, Tantino's continued to climb the ladder of filmmaker, of auteur, of screenwriter. So, and at the same time, he wouldn't be afraid to go back and dabble in, in this kind of trashy world of genre cinema either because he doesn't set that bar for himself. He's going to make whatever the hell he wants. And I think that is where these guys just couldn't see the forest through the trees of what was coming with these films. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you said he peaked on this one and he didn't say Spy Kids Armageddon because mm-hmm. when it comes to this one, I agree because, and I'm glad you said it before me because it is a hot topic and there's these films between Tarantino and Rodriguez, you're going to have opinions across the board, but you're a hundred and thousand times right that this is a movie where he had the proper balance across the board. He had these, the characters that are fantastically written. He has the pacing again to me was great. He has, even when we go full speed ahead in the last half of the, or the last 45 minutes of the movie, to me, that even at full speed for Rodriguez, I think he added some creative elements to it where he actually did challenge himself a little bit to really integrate the characters into what happens alongside our, our creatures. So yeah, there's awesome kill scenes in, in, in that scene, in, the, in that act, but the characters, I was more attracted watching what the characters do. And to me, that's a win for the director of following the characters more than we follow our creatures. And it's funny. There's humor in here. There's lots of humor in here. I think one of my favorite lines that I just crack up every single time is when Cheech Marin shows up for the third time in the film as Carlos and asks if they were psychos. And he's like, they were vampires. Psychos don't explode when sunlight hits them. I don't give a fuck how crazy they are. Perfectly written and perfectly delivered. It shows that this film doesn't have to like take itself so seriously, even after the whole family's dead and they're about to like part ways. It's like, you can still have a wink and a nod and a chuckle and make yourself feel better about everything that just happened. Yeah. And I'm glad they didn't go with the absolutely cliche ending because I remember watching it for the first time and I can kind of say being a teenager and thinking I knew everything. It's like, ah, this is going to happen. They're going to live happily ever after. There's going to be a romance or she's going to go with him. They didn't go the cliche route on it, which I really appreciate. Um, It goes to still that, that individual uh, piece of it where he's still a loner. He's still a renegade, but at the same time, he's still looking out to not tainting the, uh, the child or the teenager or what, whatever you may call, uh, to bring her along with it shows a sign of goodness to him, um, which is kind of a nod to the last right. bit where the before the credits roll to show what his character is and how his character has kind of developed throughout the movie. I mean, again, I'm going to go back to Peckinpah. This could easily be a Steve McQueen, Ally McGraw thing, right? I mean, they're going to El Rey. That's where they were going in the getaway. You know, obviously there's a throwback there, but he knows better. He's like, I'm an asshole, but I'm not a fucking asshole or, you know, or a bastard. He has, again, that code of the samurai. It's like, why would I drag an innocent person into this with me? You know, it's like, yeah, you're alone because your family's dead. So you think that I'm a good option. I'm not get in that RV and go back home. I'm going to probably go drink myself to death in El Rey. And that's his future. That's the story of him. So yeah, I like, I like how it's not cliche. Well, it's consistency with the characters. And again, we go into the consistency with how structured this movie really is to critics missing the mark on a lot of these aspects to it. And this is why I think a lot of these critics and a lot specifically Siskel and Ebert focus more on certain scenes or certain aspects because they talk about the beginning they talk about the end they don't talk about anything in the in the middle because it doesn't support what their opinion is of what they liked in the beginning and what they hated at the end because there's a lot there's more to a movie than a beginning and the end an ending has a huge impact on how you react by the end but it's the journey that gets you there and my biggest problem on both sides of the aisle is they ignore the journey And there is a lot to the journey that gets our characters there. And there's a lot to the journey that shows the consistency and the skill of our filmmakers that they don't steer off course 
at the they get from point A to point Z and they actually stay consistent. Our characters feel real. They're not artificial by the end of the movie. And that is the best piece of From Dust Till Dawn. Agree, because for a movie like this, it would only seem natural to not be true to your character's path. That you would just take either the easy way out to please audiences or go the opposite route and kill everybody so you have like a downer ending. Because we were about to enter that phase of the 90s where everything had to have a downer ending. So, no, I agree with you 100%. Um, so what are we going to rate our reviewers today? This one, I think, based on the Ebert, and I just spoke to it, and this one was, out of all that we've done so far, I think this one is my most frustrating one because I think there is a lot to this movie, and I think there is a lot that the critics miss. And I think this is one that... Neither one of them may be revisited to kind of give a deeper thought to. Um, But based on the first impression of which I said they shouldn't do and they did, and that's what they're basing it off of, um, I'm going to give Ebert's probably about an average two. Two out of four. Two out of four on that one. And for Siskel, I'm going to just go ahead and give my my one for him again because – Uh, you're a critic. You are one of the most respected critics in the world at this time. Use your words. Just don't say that the movie is ugly and that the characters are ugly and that the the film takes an ugly turn into violence and genre filmmaking. That's such an easy target. You know, you did say that you liked that interesting beginning that, that prelude to the film with Michael Parks and John Hawks, but everyone likes that. You know, I don't get any sense of your true constructive criticism about this film. You just said it was ugly, which bothers me all the time when we talk about this, but there are times where he does bring the words out and he does eloquently say what the pros and cons are of the movie rather than just saying it's ugly, it's violent, don't like it, thumbs down. Yeah, again, I I expect you to bring your A game when you are the pinnacle of cinema review at this time. So one star for me. Wow. But I kind of agree with that because, you know, there has to be a lot more than it's it's violent and it's bloody because there is a lot more to this movie other than it's, it's bloody. And if you have a problem with violence in a movie, which he doesn't, then that's review family movies. Yeah, just be, just review family movies, 100%. Well, man, this is a great film and a great conversation. And with these guys on this one, you know, I get it. I think this is a generational thing. Again, we've talked about this before where they are watching something that they just don't quite understand. Yeah, I think Ebert understands it more than Siskel does. Because he sees what's coming. He sees enough of that genre filmmaking. And I think he appreciates enough of it to show where they are either paying lip service or homage to. And at least he can speak to it. So I give him a little bit more credit on that one. And we've got more films to come. We'll see what they what they say about those. So next week, we'll be talking about my pick. And that is Melvin and Howard from director Jonathan Demme starring Jason Robards, Paul Lamatt, and Mary Steenburgen. It is a very, very interesting slice-of-life movie from the early 80s. I can't wait to talk about this one because this is one that I haven't done on my show yet, but I've been looking for a reason to. So now we're going to do it on this show because it's the perfect forum for it. Can't wait for that one. That one's going to be a good one. Everyone, you know where to find us. You can find all of my stuff on thecultworthy.com. If you want to know my true review of From Dust Till Dawn, jump on my letterbox under the Cultworthy. Justin, where can people find you? You can find me at all of the socials at MovieWire Show. You can also take a look at themoviewire.com. And we are just rolling through these episodes I want to hear rates and reviews, and I want you to subscribe to both our YouTube channel. Leave us five stars, please, on any of the pod platforms that you listen to. And we're just going to keep bringing you more and more conversations about Siskel and Ebert. Once again, I'm Antonio of the Cult Worthy Cinema Podcast. And I'm Justin Henson of the Movie Wire Podcast. 
and we will see you next week on Back to the Balcony.